Why did we happen to arrive so early in the age of the universe? Will James Webb be powerful enough to see through the zone of avoidance? And would we ever be able to move the moons around the solar system, make them more habitable? All this and more in this week's question show. It's time for the question show, your questions, my answers. As always, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. And I just want to remind you, we record this show live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to be part of the live show and get your question answered live, just go ahead and see when the next episode is going to be recorded. It'll be Monday at five. Click subscribe, click on the notification bell, and that way you've got a good chance of hearing that it's happening and come and join us. All right, let's get into the questions. Krypton9984. Why is it that we are so close to the beginning of the universe? It's only 13-ish billion years from the start, and clearly it will run for a lot longer than that. We are early adopters. Isn't that a bit weird? We can see the beginning. It is a bit of a coincidence that we are around in the universe at a time when we can perceive the beginning of the universe in the form of the cosmic microwave background radiation. And you're exactly right that there's no reason for us to think that the universe won't be infinite in time. It might be finite in space, and it might be infinite in space but it's probably going to be infinite in time, which means that if you think about all the possible times that a civilization could arise in the universe to perceive the universe, think about all the possible times in the universe, weird that we're here at a time which is near the beginning of the universe when there are still quadrillions, quintillions, nonillions of universe coming in the future. So what gives? Now, the one possibility is that there's a coincidence, right? Like somebody's got to win the lottery. And so every now and then someone's got to be lucky. But the other possibility is that we couldn't be here to perceive the universe if we there weren't planets capable of forming life to be able to perceive the universe. And when you think about how long the universe has been habitable, it's probably been possible for worlds to form with enough metal about 2 billion years before the Earth formed. So when you think about the age of the universe, 13.8 billion years, and we know that the Earth has been around for 4.5 billion years. So about six and a half to 7 billion years ago in the universe was about the earliest time that rocky planets could form. And so we're not first, but we're pretty close to that which is also makes you think that there could have been other civilizations around in the universe for 2 billion years before us. But that was like the first time in the universe that some civilization could say, Whoa, we're here in the universe. And we can look back and see the beginning in the universe. Isn't that weird? What were the chances? And then other planets formed out of the rocky material and hopefully formed life that asked this exact same question. But as we move into the future, that's going to happen less and less. Most of the star formation that is going to happen in the universe has already happened. That the high noon, the big party happened just a few billion years after the Big Bang. And now the universe is already sort of at the end of the party, sitting, putting away the chairs, um, and everybody's going home. There will still be star formation in various galaxies, but it's going to be on a declining rate. And that as the main sequence stars like our sun, the last one happens, 
then you won't have a lot of places that are potentially conducive to life. And so you won't have places where people can ask that question. Isn't it weird that we're near the beginning of the universe? And so on the one hand, it is an amazing coincidence. But then on the other hand, you need to be on a planet to be able to ask that question. And in a few billion years, we won't get any new star formation that will have the kinds of planets around it where people there can answer that kind of a question. Now, I'm sure you've noticed the Star Trek planet name that has appeared above my shoulder. And this is a way for you to vote for the question that you thought was the best or the answer you thought was the best or the combo, whatever, whatever inspired you. So uh, throughout this episode, I will answer questions and each time a different Star Trek planet will appear. And you can just down in the comments below, write down the Star Trek planet that you thought was the best one. And we will add those all up and we will celebrate the vote next week. Star Trek. Yes, finally, a little control around this place. Lagrange bees. Is JWST powerful enough to see through the zone of avoidance? Is there too much dust even for that observatory? The zone of avoidance is the region at the heart of the Milky Way. And for the longest time, astronomers had on their charts of the Milky Way, they had this blob that they wrote the zone of avoidance. And what it meant was that don't bother turning your telescope towards this direction near the core of the galaxy, because there's nothing there, you can't see anything, there is just too much gas and dust obscuring the center of the Milky Way, and you can't see anything that's behind it. And so they called this the zone of avoidance. And then one of the sort of weird, interesting coincidences is that the great attractor, this mass that was on the other side of the Milky Way, where all of the galaxies in our vicinity is sort of sliding towards happened to be on the other side of the zone of avoidance. And, you know, I've mentioned this in other episodes, right? The zone of avoidance is not the law, the zone of avoidance is not like some kind of, you know, warning to astronomers that if they point their telescopes towards the center of the Milky Way, they're going to unleash some kind of cosmic eldritch horror that will consume planet Earth. No, it's just like there's nothing there. So it's the zone of don't bother. But with the rise of infrared telescopes, astronomers are able to peer through this gas and dust because while the wavelengths are blocked in the visible light, wavelengths of infrared and radio waves can pass through this gas and dust and reveal the center of the Milky Way. And in fact, this is how we detected or were certain that there was a supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way is that astronomers were able to watch stars moving around the center of the Milky Way, like comets going around a planet. And then they were able to based on the movements of those stars able to calculate the mass of the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. And astronomers are able to see through the zone of avoidance and actually piece together all of the galaxy clusters that are on the far side of the galaxy, the ones that we could never see before. And so now it's like the zone of go ahead the zone is like, give it a try. And James Webb is the perfect machine for this. It is a infrared observatory capable of seeing through the gas and dust. And in fact, I was able to interview someone who was peering into a giant dark molecular cloud that is close to the center of the Milky Way, one of the sort of most dense dark regions in the Milky Way, and they were able to see into it and see stars into it and measure the gas and dust, they detected carbon dioxide ice in this region, which was a surprise. And so 
What we see with these big infrared observatories is that astronomers are finding galaxies on the far side of the Milky Way that are closer and closer to the supermassive black hole. Of course, obviously, they are hundreds of millions of light years away, but they are sort of like in the sky very close to the black hole. And I would assume that over a couple of years, we will get more and more observations where all of the galaxies that are on the other side of the Milky Way will be mapped out and we will have the great attractor perfectly mapped out. It's like right now it's mostly mapped out and soon it will be perfectly mapped out. So yeah, James Webb is the perfect machine to be able to contribute to the science to look through the zone of avoidance and help map out the great attractor as well as help map out the environment around the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. Mansabello UC3GY. This is way out there. However, do you think that we would ever be able to move moons? I wish we could make Ganymede a moon of Mars. I mean, we don't have the ability to move moons today. But is it theoretically possible to move moons? Absolutely. Uh, it just is going to require more capability in us being a star faring civilization. And so like right now, we can just barely get off planet Earth, we can have a space station that goes around planet Earth, we can send a couple of probes to Mars. But in the far future, we will have a much more sophisticated space based infrastructure, and we will be quite comfortable in moving objects around. And there's a couple of ideas that I that I really like. It seems like it would require an enormous amount of energy to move an object out of say, Jupiter's gravity, right? Like, like moving Ganymede away from Jupiter, and putting it somewhere else sounds really tough. And it is. But if you're patient, then you can do it a bit at a time. And so one of the ideas that I really like is that you use asteroids, and you take an asteroid and you take it fly it really close to some object that you want to move. Say you want to move Mars closer to the sun. So you want to move Ganymede and turn it into a moon of Earth. Well, you take your asteroid and you fly it really close to Ganymede. And it is able to sort of shift the orbit of Ganymede a little bit. And then maybe you have that asteroid go out around Saturn and then come back to Ganymede again, you know, it's very careful orbital mechanics to be able to do this. And then it moves the moon a little bit more and then it flies out to Saturn steals a little more of Saturn's orbital momentum, and it comes back down and moves it a little more. And eventually, over long periods of time with careful movements, you could actually peel away all of the moons from Jupiter, and then you could rearrange them in places where they would be better in the solar system. Like what if you had put Ganymede in an orbit that was close to the Earth still within the habitable zone, but not close enough that it's having like gravitational interactions with Earth, so it's going to get kicked out, or they're going to collide. And there are places. And so there was a paper that came out and we reported this on universe today just like last week. And I love it. And the gist is like, we think about all these ideas about building megastructures, like, oh, we could just build a Dyson sphere, Oh, we should just try and build a ring world. And like, these are ludicrous amounts of technology that would be required. But there are perfectly good worlds here in the solar system that just need to be moved around a little. And so yeah, we could with, you know, not technology we have today, but technology that is coming in the next, say, 1000 years, where we could start to to reorganize the solar system in a way that makes more sense, maybe crash various worlds in, into each other, 
and add more habitable zones into the region around the sun, maybe stuff that's closer to the Earth, but not quite as close as Venus, and then just keep stacking up. And there's going to be some place where you're going to hit this level of perfection where you're going to have the most worlds orbiting around. And this is obviously like a theoretical idea, but where this is kind of practical back to our you know, our conversation about techno signatures is that you could now look for a place out in the Milky Way where it has a whole bunch of planets that are like terrestrial planets that are organized very closely around their star. Like, do we know an example of that Trappist one? Um, so, you know, maybe we look for other Trappist ones, other places out there in the Milky Way where the planets are organized in the habitable zone in a way that actually makes a ton of sense. And it means like the future of our work in the solar system, like why tear apart everything? Let's just move it slightly. And boom, we get way more habitable worlds. And I like I love this idea, like if we had five planets relatively close to us in orbits, and so you could fly off of one planet, fly to the next planet, visit for a while, fly back to the other planet, you could bring all of these worlds closer together. And I think you're exactly right. Like, I don't want Ganymede to be a moon of Mars, I want Ganymede to be a moon of Earth. I want to be right there. And we can visit it all the time. Paul Kowal, is the CMB uniform no matter where you are in the universe? Yes, that if you could go anywhere in the universe, and you looked out with your Planck Observatory, you would see the same cosmic microwave background radiation that we see here on Earth. Now you would see a different cosmic microwave background radiation because you would be in a different location. But you would see roughly the same kind of thing. In fact, when I look into space and see the cosmic microwave background radiation, and you look into space and see the CMB, we are seeing different CMBs. And the analogy that I really like is that imagine you're walking in a big thick fog and you're just walking around in the fog and you're seeing like right next to you, you can see your hands. But then as it goes farther away from you, you're sort of in this sphere where it gets harder and harder to see. And eventually you just can't see anything around you. But you could move to a new location. Now you can move over to that rock that you could just barely see. And now you can see the rock really perfectly. But now you've still got this CMB all around you. And the same thing goes for anybody else who's trapped in this thick fog, they're all seeing their own personal version of the fog. And, you know, when you actually look at the cosmic microwave background radiation in a very powerful telescope, you can see minute temperature variations, which are sort of left over from the formation of the universe. These are places that were more and less dense in the beginning of the universe. And so you got higher and lower temperatures as the universe started to expand to the point that the cosmic microwave background was released. And so when we look at the CMB, we see these changes in temperature, and we're able to kind of map them out. And they are different from the large galaxy clusters that those over densities turned into over time. And so if I went to some other place in the universe and looked at CMB, I would see a completely different map, but it would have the same kind of numbers like we'd have maximum temperature this minimum temperature that you see clustering and clumps of the certain kinds of sizes. And then I would also see the similar sort of large scale structure of the universe all around me. Corley, how close are we to figuring out dark matter? I know it's a loaded question, but I still have to try. We don't know how close we are to figuring out dark matter. I mean, astronomers have been aware that there is something extra in the universe for 
like a hundred years, you know, the first observations that they made that gave them a hint that something weird was going on is that you had galaxies rotating in a way that didn't make sense. They were rotating so fast that they should be tearing themselves apart. Like if you add up all of the mass in the galaxy of all the stars and all the gas and all the planets, and then you calculate how fast it is rotating, the thing should just be tearing itself apart, but it doesn't. And so there's like something else that is holding it gravitationally together. And then when you look at the movements of the stars inside the galaxy, and you're able to track the orbits of the stars around the center of the galaxy, they don't move the way stars move in the solar system. Like, you know, Mercury goes really fast, and then Venus goes a little slower, but Neptune goes really slow. But when you look at the stars in a galaxy, they move at about the same speed. So stars that are very close to the center of the galaxy and stars that are really far out in the galaxy, they're all moving at roughly the same speed. And so there is some other kind of mass or some kind of gravitational influence that is causing this motion. And more recently, now astronomers are able to use gravitational lensing to map out the dark matter in the universe, you know, we're able to see with incredible resolution now blobs of dark matter places where there is dark matter places where there aren't dark matter, we can actually like see a galaxy cluster. And then using sort of watching how light from a more distant object is passing through this galaxy cluster, we can see blobs and fluctuations about where more and less mass that seems invisible to us is modifying the way that light is coming towards us. And so, you know, the, the just in the last couple of weeks, astronomers will be able to get that resolution down to about 30,000 light years across and so they can see a blob of dark matter that is about 30,000 light years across, even though they can't see any stars inside of it, purely through the way it's distorting the light that's moving through it. We see the presence of it in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And so there's plenty of independent lines of evidence that there is something there. But what is it? <laughs> right? And so up until this point, astronomers have just sort of fallen into two camps, like the one camp is it's some kind of particle like because we've seen this before, we've seen neutrinos, people had suspected that there was a thing called neutrinos, they did the calculations for them that they should exist, they know that some part of the fusion process should be generating these particles, and yet they couldn't find them. And then they realized that they were just really hard to find. And then it was only with the biggest particle detectors that neutrinos finally turned up. And so the same possibilities with dark matter, there's just this particle, we can't detect it with any of the experiments we've done so far. But it's still out there. And because we could see like it's there, we could see its influence on the universe. And then the other possibility is this idea of modified Newtonian dynamics that the gravity works differently at the large scales, like, like, gravity works one way when you like drop a rock really close, but at the large scales at the galactic scales, in fact, gravity has some additional parameters that that weren't seen at the local level. And astronomers kind of go back and forth between those, and it could very well be that it's a combination of all of those. So like, where are we today, you know, 2023? Uh, where are we in the understanding for dark matter? And I think we are currently in the let's try to uh, figure out ideas, let's try and figure out parameters. And so like, there are certain kinds of particles that have been proposed for dark matter. And so you would see them in a particle accelerator, or you would see them in some kind of detection, like the way they detect neutrinos, and they haven't found them. You can imagine that it is some other kind of particle that you would see annihilating at the middle of white dwarf stars or the middle of the Milky Way. And astronomers haven't seen that the antimatter coming from the annihilation of that dark matter yet. And so you know, we can't rule that out, but you can rule out certain parts. And so if you imagine it's this map of possible terrain, 
astronomers don't know what it is, but they're trying to figure out what it isn't. And so they're able to sort of go, nope, this can no longer be an explanation for dark matter. That can no longer be an explanation for dark matter. And they are just sort of narrowing in the possible explanations that can remain. And it would be great if somebody like had one of those theories about what it was, and they were able to perfectly find that particle like boom, we created dark matter in the Large Hadron Collider done Nobel Prizes all around or we detected the dark matter particle using the ice cube neutrino observatory we detected the, the shower of particles coming from dark matter moving through our detector done. But the problem isn't giving itself up that easily. So uh, how close are we because we're still in the we don't know what it is phase and we're trying to figure out what it isn't phase. I don't think we're very close. I would say we are still probably decades away from knowing what it is. You know, things shifted with neutrinos when people finally detected the first neutrinos moving through their detectors. But there was still a lot of information about neutrinos that they didn't understand. And there had been other big problems about how neutrinos change their flavors mid flight, missing types of neutrinos. And so it took decades and decades to finally fully map out our understanding of neutrinos. But that's fine, right? Like, like some mysteries, you get to show up afterwards and go, well, of course, it was neutrinos. Everybody knew knows that well, you know, when you were there, when it was happening, nobody knew that. Um, but you happen to show up in the middle of one of these mysteries, dark matter, and, and it, it will take as long as it takes. And people won't say it's solved until people are sure. So uh, enjoy the ride, enjoy the mystery. So if you want to support the work that we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club. Your support lets us have a minimum of ads and no sponsorship messages. Patrons get no ads on universetoday.com for life. Want the extra parts of the live stream that aren't in this edited version? You can sign up for a special Patreon only podcast feed and get the overtime segments as well as other special behind the scenes episodes, including our monthly patron only question show. Thanks to everyone who has already subscribed and welcome to our recent newcomers, Mark Farber, John Michelson, Bear Days, Claudio Gill, Frank C. Brantz, Paulo Costa, David Ehrman, Chris Johnson, James Ryan, and Ryan Orman. Join the club at patreon.com slash universe today. I hope you like all of the reporting that we're doing with Universe Today and with our various episodes here on YouTube. But of course, this is a fraction of the news that we actually do at the Universe Today website. And the way that I bring it all together for you is my weekly email newsletter. This is a giant magazine that I write every week that gets sent out by email. There's no ads in it. It's completely free. And I write every single word in the entire newsletter. And sometimes there are a lot of words, like sometimes there are 30 or 40 stories that we're covering as well as links to other stuff that I'm finding. So this is my exact view of all of the space news that's breaking this week. And you can sign up for it. Go to universetoday.com slash newsletter. What is the benefit? How long will SLS last? Will they continue to throw money at it? I don't know how long SLS is going to last right now. You know, NASA has just put the engines on Artemis two, they are preparing the Artemis three mission, that's the one that's going to land humans on the moon. They've signed a contract with SpaceX to provide the lander for the Artemis four mission. They've signed contracts for the six, seven, and eight Orion capsules. So it looks like SLS is going to go all the way through till eight, probably. Um, they've signed contracts to build the engines for some of them after the the reused engines runs out and they're going to move to other ones. 
you know, it's a very expensive rocket. It is on the order of a couple of billion dollars per launch. And when you consider how inexpensive relatively other kinds of rocket systems are, it is very expensive. And there was a recent report from a government agency accounting office that said it's not affordable. Like the amount of budget that NASA is currently getting um, compared to the goals that Congress has given NASA, they do not line up. And so eventually SLS, like NASA won't be able to afford to put in the investments of this program to be able to achieve the goals that it has been mandated to reach. Like, I think it's really important for people to understand this, that, that, you know, people are like, oh, why is NASA spending all this money? Well, NASA is forced to by the government, by Congress. It is the law in the United States that they have to achieve these goals. They have to build this rocket system. They have to use these providers. Like this is all locked in. NASA is doing the best they can with the situation that they are provided. And so one of two things has got to give, right? Like either Congress has got to give NASA more budget, the kind of budget that's going to be required to continue SLS into the future, or that Congress is going to have to give NASA the flexibility to accomplish the goals, however it thinks best. And that may require cutbacks, it may require ditching various kinds of systems, maybe moving to different technologies, going all in on Starship. Uh, we don't know, right? You know, I think there's been some really clever developments at NASA as part of the sort of new regulatory environment that they find themselves in. One good example is the crew service contracts that they give to SpaceX and eventually Boeing to send astronauts to the International Space Station. Like, NASA didn't develop the rocket, NASA didn't develop any of the hardware. All NASA does is say ticket please, and then gives SpaceX or gives Boeing money to carry their astronauts up to the International Space Station. It's very simple. Uh, it's very clean and puts all of the risk into the hands of these aerospace companies. And yet they can use that technology for other things like space tourism and taking people to private space stations and and who knows what else, right? Like it's up to them. It's like, it's kind of like you don't, NASA doesn't design cars to do their maintenance work on site, they buy cars, and then they use them. And it's and I think that's a great model for certain kinds of things. Um, so something has to give like this can't last forever. And we're gonna see this start to dismantle in the coming years when NASA has to start saying we can't reach your goals, because we don't have enough money, like we cannot do this because it's too expensive. So I would give it a couple of years and you're going to start to see either revisions to the plan or additional funding to NASA. And the Chinese are going full bore at sending humans to the moon. They plan to do it before 2030. And I think they will, right? Like all of the pieces are coming together. And so the question is, you know, is it a new space race? Is the United States okay with, with not being you know, not going back to the moon and staying with this powerful new launch system going in some kind of diminished version, we're going to find out. And uh, so like right now, everything is up in the air and we'll see how it all turns out. Greg Johnson, JWST has already been struck by small items. Will it survive as long as its fuel will allow? 
Right. So after web first launched, we heard reports that a couple of micrometeorites had hit the main mirror. And most of these were small and harmless and were sort of anticipated by the team. But one was a little bigger and caused a little more damage than anyone was expecting, still within the parameters and the capability of what the telescope is supposed to be able to do. But it was larger than anyone was anticipating for the life of the telescope. And so that caused the people running the telescope to change the way they operate. They have sort of turned the telescope around. And so now Webb is always viewing sort of behind itself in its own wake. And what that means is that, you know, as it's orbiting around the sun, any of the meteorites that will crash into it from the direction, you know, opposite that it's moving, you know, those are going to be moving very fast, and they will be doing the most damage, because you're adding together the velocity of the telescope with the velocity of the of the micrometeorite. But the ones that will catch up to web, they're going to be moving a lot lower velocity, and so do a lot less damage. And so this has changed the way this telescope does its observations to keep it a lot safer, you know, they're able to still meet all of the goals. And it is you know, I think this is a good example where you realize the scale of a problem only when you are in the middle of it. And so now they've adapted and they're still going to meet all of their objectives and still have all of their observing time because there's plenty to see, you know, as, as the telescope was around the Earth for one year, you know, there's always something that is behind in its own wake. And eventually you see the whole sky, you just have to sort of change what you're looking at and when, and this will keep it a lot safer. So yeah, we haven't heard any more news of any large impacts hitting the telescope since then. And so I can't see any reason why it wouldn't last until it runs out of fuel. Corey Christensen, what are your thoughts on the OSIRIS-REx sample return? This one's personal for me because I watched that rocket launch seven years ago. Chad, who's editing this video now, uh, my wife and I flew to Kennedy Space Center and we watched the OSIRIS-REx mission take off. And this was the first time that I had ever seen a rocket fly. You know, I've been reporting on rockets for over 15 years at that point, but I had never actually watched a rocket take off and sort of feel it viscerally. And uh, we did, which was amazing. You know, I always talk about this as like one of those experiences that regular people can have. It's not that complicated. Like if you live in North America, if you live, especially if you live in the United States or Canada, you just have to go to Florida and stay in a hotel on the beach. And they're launching a couple of rockets a week sometimes. And so you just like stand out on the deck or down on the beach and you watch a rocket take off and you can have roughly the same experience that we did out at Cape Canaveral. And this is like a significant sample return from an asteroid. I mean, I know that we got the previous missions from Hayabusa 1 and Hayabusa 2, which delivered asteroid samples back to Earth. So this isn't the first time that we've got our hands on an asteroid sample, but still more asteroid samples, the better. And the other part where it's sort of personal is our community with CosmoQuest helped choose the landing site for OSIRIS-REx, where it was going to take its sample from. And because a lot of people in the chat right now who remember the pain of analyzing rocks on the surface of Bennu. And yet, here we are today with a sample of this asteroid in hand back on Earth, chance for scientists, you know, like a lot of it and a chance for scientists to go through it. And this is a time capsule of the solar system, this asteroid formed 
at the beginning of the solar system in some form, you know, it's been crunched up a bunch of times, but it hasn't been weathered, it hasn't had volcanoes on it, it hasn't had life eating away, it hasn't been rained on. It is pristine and left over from the beginning of the solar system. And so what an amazing time and place to be able to get all of this information about the earliest ages of the solar system, as well as just like the evolution that happened of material over time beyond that, and even the evolution of this asteroid itself. Is it all one part that was cracked up into little pieces? Or is it collected together from a bunch of different asteroids that smashed together? So many questions. And the answers come now where scientists are able to get their hands into these samples and start to work with them. So yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly excited about what we're about to find out about asteroids and the history of the solar system. Kai Pickle, what's your opinion on name exoworlds and IAU hosted event giving exoplanets proper names? I think it's a tragedy that exoplanets don't have proper names. I mean, K218b, TOI722. Like, these are not cool names. I mean, right now, you've got Star Trek planet names appearing over my shoulder. And those are names from science fiction that have really cool names. And so we should have names for exo like a big part of the wonder of the solar system, I think is the names they're named after Greek gods. And, and then the moons are named after mythology. And, you know, this idea of us using our mythology and even our literature and our stories and our people to name things that should totally extend out into extrasolar planets. I think the challenge is that you need to have some kind of central body that's organizing this. And so if it's being done by the International Astronomical Union, then that is as much of a group of astronomers as you can possibly get as long as they do a good job. And they, you know, but I mean, there's an unlimited number of exoplanets, like we could all have 10 exoplanets named after us if we wanted to more actually when you think about it, every person on Earth could have multiple exoplanets named after them. So there's like lots of room to grow. And yet I think it would be so cool if the exoplanets that that we're aware of now have cool names. Yes, please. Um, let's let's do that. So now I'm I'm all for this. Lubo in China. I noticed that kids here kind of lost interest in space and they don't want to be astronauts like we used to say in our childhood. Is the same happening everywhere? I mean, I don't have any personal experience with this. Neither of my kids ever wanted to be astronauts. But I wonder if it's just part of us as a culture growing up. It's like back in the day, there were only a couple of astronauts that had never done, you know, the first time ever people went to space and it was a giant inspiration for everybody. But now, there have been hundreds of people who've gone to space, multiple countries. It's more of an everyday thing. Like I can't name all of the astronauts who are on board the International Space Station right now, you know, and this is my job, right? <laughs> um, and yet, obviously, you know, we could all name the, the first people to walk on the moon or the first people in space. And so after a while, it just becomes this thing that we are accustomed to. But I think the other part of it is, is that the internet and sort of additional information that people have access to now and science fiction has inspired us has you know, I see more excitement when you look at the number of channels out there that are just covering every single twitch of Starship and SpaceX, 
it's kind of amazing how excited people are that a new nozzle is attached to this rocket and that fueling tank was moved to this location and this thing is being tanked up and that rocket is being tested. Like there is an enormous amount of enthusiasm when you watch see like the number of people who tune in for big live streams like the launch of Artemis, things like that, like it is in the hundreds of 1000s of people. So um, I don't know. I don't know if if there's like an overall enthusiasm, you know, we, maybe pe people are just becoming more realistic about what is required to be an astronaut. You know, we didn't know before. And now we kind of do know like what kind of people make it. But you know, when you think about like the number of people who apply to become astronauts, the European Space Agency or NASA every year, like it's an enormous number of people. And these are incredibly well qualified people. And so each one of those people had to have been inspired to build their capability to to, you know, become astronauts by going through the military, becoming test pilots or going through university and becoming doctors and scientists and having all of these amazing skills and capabilities and being able to use that to become astronauts. So um, but I I don't know, like if you I mean, the sad thing, right, is that if you like interviewed kids and asked them what they want to do for their life, they want my job. They want to be YouTubers. Although I'm not a YouTuber, I'm a science, I'm a space journalist. But um, yeah, boy. Uh, man, that's not that's not great. I don't know. Hive indicator. What is a weird or outlandish thing hypothesis that you hope gets evidence? Primordial black holes as an explanation for dark matter. Um, so what you think about dark matter, we talked about dark matter before that, you know, maybe it is some kind of hypothetical particle, or maybe it's gravity at a large scale that we don't understand. But one explanation for dark matter that just won't go away is that it's black holes and not any kind of black hole because, you know, like, how do you get 10 times as much black hole mass in the universe as regular mass? Uh, you don't get that by by stars dying and becoming black holes and merging and becoming supermassive black holes, you get that by having black holes left over from the beginning of time. And that in the earliest universe, when we had these higher and lower densities in space, you had black holes of all different sizes forming immediately after the universe, and then the universe cooled down and you just got regular matter. But those black holes were all there. And I like I love the idea. I mean, it's a little scary too, but I love the idea that as we look out into space and we were able to detect the presence of this dark matter, that this dark matter is just black holes of all sizes, some which could be a thousand times the mass of the sun and other ones that are like the mass of a house and they're all over the place everywhere. And this is a theory that we can prove, right? Like the upcoming Nancy Grace Roman telescope will be able to look out into space, be able to see gravitational microlensing as like it's watching all these stars and every and then one of these stars is going to dim. And if it depending on how long it takes for the star to dim and brighten, you could detect whether or not a black hole passed in front. And if it sees enough of these, it might detect black holes that have too low mass that there's no way they could have formed in the universe, except if they had formed at the beginning of the universe as primordial black holes. So, you know, I've done the interviews, I've done lots of stories about this on the past. And it is like an idea that there's no evidence for it. But it also can't be overruled. And, uh, and I love it. I just love the idea that that what is dark matter, it is black holes, big and small, and it would explain a lot of other things, right? Like it would help explain where supermassive black holes come from, it might help explain how galaxies assemble themselves so quickly. So there's a lot of other things that kind of come along for the ride as well. Um, but yeah, that's the one. Denmark 1980. Couldn't we solve our water crisis by capturing a comet? 
Yes and no. So like, obviously there is a lot of water in a comet, like a comet could be 10 kilometers across, right? And, and have mostly water with some rock and other volatiles mixed in. Like that is a lot of water. And yet, how are you going to get it back to earth? You know, some of the greatest natural disasters on our planet, things that have caused the death of most of life on Earth happened when comets were, you know, crashed into planet Earth. And so I can't think of a way you could gently bring a comet of any usable size back down to Earth. And of course, you know, Earth doesn't have a water crisis. We have a freshwater crisis. And I don't know if we have a, it's a freshwater crisis. But Earth is covered in oceans, we have an enormous amount of ocean, it's just filled with salt. And so if you dropped a comet onto planet Earth, um, apart from the apocalypse, you would then create, uh, you would then have this problem of it would be mixing with the salt water and it would make the water in the oceans like a little bit less salty, and then it would be gone. And so you would have to like, have it land on Earth somewhere. Um, you know, that doesn't sound safe. So I think the best place to keep comet water is out in space, right? Like out in space, spacecraft are gonna need water for propellant for for astronauts to breathe for all kinds of uses. And so you capture a comet, and then you mine it in space, and then you use it for the resources in space. And you don't let it get for any closer to Earth than that. Um, and so, you know, people always talk about like, when is asteroid mining going to happen? It's gonna happen when we use the resources in space, for space to explore space. So no, we'll keep the comets away from Earth. Thank you very much. Brett Young, if we're not the center of the universe, then it is more than 67 billion years old, because we can see 13 billion years in both ways left and right. So why do they say 13.8 billion years? So you are at the center of the observable universe. And like by that's like the definition of the observable universe, you are at the middle of it, what you can observe back to that analogy I mentioned earlier on in this episode, you know, when you are in thick fog, you're in the center of your observable fog averse. And so you know, there's a certain limit how much fog you can see in all around you because you know, how many particles are obscuring you and, and your view. And so your observable universe is personal for you and mine is different for me and an alien 10 billion light years away is going to see their own personal observable universe. And then as we look out into the observable universe, we are seeing back in time, we see the moon, a couple of seconds ago, we see the sun eight minutes ago, we see Andromeda 2.5 million years ago, we see you know, other giant galaxies 100 million years ago, we see quasars 5 billion years ago. And the farthest thing that we can see or the earliest thing that we can see is the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is 13.8 billion years, it's about 370,000 years after the Big Bang. So it's essentially the same time, you know, when you're looking at the billion year scale. And so we are seeing in all directions, we are seeing that light that has made that journey from the beginning of the universe to our eyeballs. And it has always made taken 13.8 billion years in all directions to make that journey. But that is not the size of the universe. That is just the age of the universe. That is the amount of time that that light has been traveling, but the universe has been expanding since then. And so in fact, what you see as the observable universe light that has been traveling for 13.8 billion years, the universe has expanded to have those places now be about 46 billion light years away. 
And again, it's completely personal. Your observable version of this universe is different. There are things that I can see in the observable universe that you can't see because we are not side by side. And so I'm going to see a little bit to one side farther than you can, and you can see a little bit farther to the other side than I can. But we don't know how big the actual universe is. We can only see the observable universe. And back to the analogy of the fog, you don't know how far the fog goes, right? You can only see the amount of fog that you can see into. And so our limit for the amount of the universe that we can see is just this observable region. But it, the universe could be a thousand times bigger than what we could see, or the universe could be infinite, and yet we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Or we can't tell the difference. KGS. Is Sag A star still consuming stars around it? If so, what is the next star on death row? So Sag A star, that is the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, uh, which was the target of the Event Horizon Telescope. We were able to see the region around it. And astronomers have been watching this area for a long time. And well, like about 25 years, astronomers have been able to observe the area around the supermassive black hole with these new infrared instruments that I mentioned. And so we can see the movements of these stars going around the black hole as if they are comets going around a planet. And in some cases, they're being stretched and twisted as they go past the supermassive black hole, like the ones that are making the closest approach to the black hole are getting tidally disrupted. But none are actually going into the black hole and none are actually getting consumed and gobbled up. Every now and then we do see a flash of gamma radiation from the region around the black hole. And so that seems to mean that like a gas cloud has gone into the black hole or has gone into an accretion disk around the black hole. There's some proposals that some of these flashes that we've seen every now and then, like one of them was due to a star, but it's probably more likely due to a like just a, a blob of gas that's in the region around the black hole. So, you know, over the longest time scales, like if we could just fast forward this region and watch it for hundreds of thousands of years, yeah, we would see stars go in and they would be torn up. There'd be this flash of radiation for a few years while the star was being consumed and then the black hole would go quiet again. And still, this is nothing compared to what a quasar is. Like a quasar is feeding on stars at an epic level that it is like got so much material that's falling in that's creating this gigantic accretion disk around it. It's just piling up the star is feeding on this stuff for 1000s of years, maybe millions of years. And it is constantly throwing out bright radiation for for the material coming out of the accretion disk. So we don't see any stars falling into the black hole on a regular basis. Occasionally something flashes. But apart from that, our black hole is relatively quiet. Now things may juice up again when we crash into Andromeda in 5 billion years from now. And when that happens, then we could see a lot of new material fed into either our black hole or their black hole. And so maybe one or both of them will turn into a quasar and then maybe both of them will merge. Uh, it's going to be a, a one final party for our two galaxies. All right, those were all of the questions that we had today. Thank you, everyone, for asking questions both in the YouTube comments as well as everybody who showed up for the live show. It was great to be back. I'm going to talk about some TV that I'm watching shortly, but first, I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Just Paul Davis, Vlad Shiplin, Jay Dennis, David Giltonad, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. And all our patrons, all your support means the universe to us. A lot of people have been asking if I've been watching the Foundation series, and yes, 
Yes, I have. You probably know that I'm a gigantic fan of the original Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. I read them every, probably every 10 years. You know, I first read them when I was a teenager, and then I've read them in my, you know, every couple of years after, or every few decades after that. And every time I read them, I'm like, these are so great. Uh, they are like the perfect original giant empire, political factions, deep time concepts. Um, and, and some parts of them don't age, haven't aged very well, but other parts of them are just fantastic. And so it was with much trepidation when the new Foundation series came out from Apple TV. We have a regular series of Apple devices here in the house, so we don't seem to have Apple TV. Um, and the first season I watched and the second season, and I am conflicted. On the one hand, it's a good show. I'm not going to argue. Uh, the special effects are good. The story is good. The ideas for the empire lineage is good. Uh, a lot of stuff are, are great, but it is not foundation. Um, they took the core of what foundation is about how, you know, Harry Seldon made these predictions that at the larger scales, human beings will tend to do things over time. And then made it personal again, where various people were making predictions and were stopping things and were respond. Like the whole point of foundation is that you don't matter that, that, that it's the large scale things that will happen with, with psychohistory. And so, but of course, to try and have people be connected to these stories, they kept these characters in. And I was pretty grumpy about it with the first season. And I think with the second season, I just learned to let go. And it was great. I really did like the second season of Foundation. I liked it better than the first one. And I also sort of like had overcome my animosity. But every now and then, I will watch the show and go like, that is the opposite of what they of what was in the books. That is not what was intended by Isaac Asimov. This is the exact opposite thing that he was saying in the books. But I understand why they did it. And I'm okay with it. So uh, if you want some good science fiction, uh, definitely watch the Foundation series and read the books. But I wonder if you should, which order you should do that in. I don't know. Anyway, let me know what you thought of Foundation.